Maybe you're feeling a little bummed when you saw everybody that wasn't going to be here, but the praise this morning was loud beyond our numbers, so uh, praise God for that. So don't feel all depressed uh, about that. And uh, we brought our family, sort of to make sure there weren't empty chairs this morning, so uh, greet uh, Nancy's mom and uh, Nancy's sister and uh, brother-in-law Mark and all my nieces, so uh, they have all the girls in their family. We have all the boys, so it's a great... It's a great balance, so uh, thanks for coming. Let's stand as we hear God speak truth to us. Psalm 73. This is the word of God for the people of God, for their hope and their strengthening and encouragement in Christ. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak like this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Last week and then this week and then next week, we're going to be taking a look at Basically, how do we have our emotions and our experience of of the hurts of life? We find that uh, the worst possible thing has happened is that we find these hurts and these fears and these thoughts to be resistant to hope. The hope of God, the hope of Scripture, the hope that even other people would want to give to us. Um, Gary probably sees these signs at the hospital. Don't over-prescribe antibiotics. It's for the future of our children. Why should we not over-prescribe antibiotics? It's because 
we would become resistant to them. And these bugs would overwhelm us. They would overrun the world and we couldn't stamp them out. And a lot of times we find out that our, that our dark thoughts and, and our emotions that, that seem to be like the tail wagging the dog, man, they have so much power over me. And why are they so resistant to uh, encouragement and to changing our perspective so that we find hope in God? And, and that's really what this psalm is about. The last psalm that we looked at was, normally with my arms, I would just want to hug myself and, and get into a fetal position when I feel lost and when I feel alone and when I feel hurt. This, and, so that, and instead, the psalmist, by God's grace, was able to lift up his arms and praise God and trust God and cry out for God to not stop crying out. This week, I want us to look at what do our eyes do when we're depressed? What do our eyes do when we feel lost? And where are they looking and who aren't we seeing? And, and uh, why do we feel so lost? And uh, so I want to look at three uh, points this morning. First, a grave injustice is what the psalmist sees that sends him into a tailspin. So a grave injustice. The second, I want us to look at the psalmist's wrong interpretation of what he sees and what that does to his emotions, what that does to his faith. Then I want to see how God in a great way, brings a gracious intervention into his life so that he doesn't feel lost. In fact, he feels found, he feels treasured, he feels hopeful, he finds his joy in God alone. But we're not there yet. We're living in the middle of uh, the stress and the strain and the trouble of looking around us and seeing things that aren't right and the people who aren't doing right. What does it say in this passage? The evil are flourishing. They're doing awesome and uh, so he kind of, in the first three verses, kind of summarizes the problem so that we would know how this story is going so we wouldn't feel lost in the middle, that there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end to the story of feeling lost and feeling like it's not worth it. He says God is good to his people, even though we can't see it, even though we can't feel it. He says, I almost slipped, I almost stumbled, I almost fell off the path because it didn't feel like it was worth it to keep going. And here, here was the heart problem. It is in verse 3. The heart of the matter is, I envied the arrogant. They have everything. They don't have any pains until that last gasp before they die. The whole part of their life is easy street. The whole part of their life is cruising, enjoying all the good stuff. And look at verse 4. You might not think this is a blessing. Their bodies are fat. And, and oily, you know, is literally what the Hebrew says. You're like, well, that's not a blessing. But back in the, you know, Victorian days, if you saw somebody that was a little bit chubby, you would say, God's really good to them. They've been eaten, and it literally says, and they anointed their places with oil. And we're like, man, give me that clearasil. Let me get that oil off my face. But that meant that they were eating well the omega-3 fatty acids. They were eating a lot of really good, you know, goat fajitas and beef fajitas. And they were just literally oozing with the goodness of God because they were eating well. But, but what is oozing out of these people? Not only are they eating well, not only are they sleek and fat and happy, but their hearts are proud. What is their attitude towards God? They speak against the heavens. Everything coming out of their mouths is blankety-blank, God this, blankety-blank that. What? How are they possibly allowed to be living a life full of blessing when what's coming out of their life is full of terrible things? And he's got, the, the psalmist has a problem. 
And we have a problem when we see when people who hate God and when people are running from God, when people are proud before God and their life is just overflowing with blessing. And then we start to look at little old me. Man, I'm stressed out, God. I go to worship. I go to small group. I set up chairs on Sunday morning. I give the sermon or I teach Sunday school or I do this. I bring the donuts. You know, what? Look at my life. I can't find a job. I feel guilty all the time because God just shows me my sin and I'm just feeling bummed out and lame when I'm around other Christians. It's not fun to be around them because they're so good and I have this bad attitude all the time because I envy the proud. I envy the wicked. So what is he doing with his eyes? He's surveying the lay of the land and he sees the guys with the black hats Way too happy, way too privileged, way too blessed. And he looks at the guys in the white hats. And he's literally saying to God, what's up with this? This isn't the economics of faithfulness. The economics of faithfulness would seem to say, if you put in some God credits, put in some God time in prayer and, and uh, you know Bible study and church and worship, your life should flourish. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. He bears fruit in his season. Not so the wicked. They're like dried up, crusty shells of, of grain. But here, the psalmist is saying, Man, they're, they're the fattest, happiest people I've ever seen. And God's people are the most dried up, sad group of people I've ever seen. And I, I am their chief. He's wrestling with this grave injustice and this grave inequality between the blessed wicked and the bummed out righteous and he goes what what what's up with this well it doesn't take long for us to look around and for us to think these things and this points us to the heart of the matter is though in fact those things are true they're having a great time we're having a rough time those seem to be the facts But like anything, the facts aren't self-interpreting. You can look at any set of facts and come to a different interpretation because it's based on how am I looking at this problem. Well, what does it say in verse 13? It's his wrong interpretation of the evidence. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So he's done the math, he's weighed it out, he comes down, draws the total line and sums it up and he says, serving God does not equal blessing. Fighting God, hating God, being proud in this world equals blessing. He says, in vain I've kept a clean heart and clean hands. God, what do I get when I obey you? And he's looked at his life and he says, I get nothing. This isn't, this isn't fair. And, and I kind of joked to Michael, I didn't have a three-point outline when he called earlier in the week because I said, this is going to be more like a story. And in fact, I'll be real honest with you, Psalm 73 is my story. And I'll tell you a little bit of a story. I won't give you all the gory details, but uh, when I was in seminary, it was in the last century, 20th century, um, And I met my wife during seminary, so that was indeed a blessing. Literally months, about five months before I met uh, now my wife, Nancy, 
was literally the spiritually and mentally, emotionally darkest time of my life in seminary, which seems weird at first, right? I was literally drowning in God's truth. But my fears and my doubts and my anger learned how to swim, <laughs> learned how to float. Uh, I, I was studying God's Word in Hebrew and Greek. I was studying theology. I was reading John Calvin. I was reading all these great godly men with, full of the hope of the grace of God, and I was depressed. I lived in a room that was like six, by, six foot by ten foot, a single bed with enough room for a desk and a bookcase. I lived with about 50 other guys in a dorm, and we ate at a cafeteria. And the highlight of our day was to wolf down a really tasteless, nasty food and to get, be the first one in the first couch so that we could watch Star Trek Next Generation. Man, as I say it, it's even sadder than, than it should sound, right? Oh, our, our, our highlight was watching uh, Data and, and Worf and, uh, and Captain Picard and eating our nasty cafeteria food. And I just looked at my life, and I, I think I owned one CD, and I was like, oh, God, I'm a musician. I'm, I'm a techie, and I own one freaking CD to my name. This is not right. And as I lived in my own world, and I saw how things had been distributed across God's world, and I looked at my life, and I looked where I lived, and I looked at my state, I had given up my life to God. For heaven's sake, I'm going to become a pastor and be poor for the rest of my life. Oh, God, can you not just give me, throw me a bone, God. Throw me something that would fill my heart. But God wasn't throwing me any bones. He wasn't giving me any more comforts. And I got more and more depressed. And I got more and more self-pitying until I really felt like I was losing my mind. So it was literally over Christmas, I was coming to the end of myself, literally mentally, and I just laid on the floor, and and suddenly I realized, where was my heart going? Where were my eyes going? I was looking at everything, I was adding up the math all wrong, because in fact, I was God's all along. I had been focusing all my life on what I had done for him, what I had given up for God. Oh, God, look how clean my hands are. God, look how empty my bank account is. God, look how empty this room is. Look how empty my life is. God, I'm a martyr for you. But I realized at the end that I had no love for God. And God had never stopped. Even when I'm laying on the floor in a grown-up temper tantrum, God had not forsaken me. And I cried out, All I could say is, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I was throwing a kicking, screaming fit because of what I didn't have on my shelf, what I didn't have in my life. And it doesn't always work this way, but when God brought me to repentance, five months later, I met the love of my life, and now my wife and the mother of my kids. And what's the message? I had a wrong interpretation. Not only of just, it's not fair that people have stuff and I'm giving up all this stuff for God. Where's my stuff? I had a wrong interpretation of God. That I said, God loves me when he gives me stuff. But how, how do we get rid of this wrong interpretation? Well, we find that three dangers of having this wrong interpretation before uh, we move on. First of all, our wrong interpretation says it's not worth following God because you get zip from following Him. 
looking at what you don't have, looking at what God hasn't given on the basis of your obedience makes you think, this is not worth it. Second, we find that we're a slave to our emotions. Look at verse 21 and 22. When my soul was, what does it say? Embittered. My heart was bitter against God. And what did that do to him? It pickled his heart. It made him sour. And what did it do to him? Verse 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. What happened? He forgot everything he knew about God. He forgot everything he knew about living in God's world and how God works and how good, like verse 1 says, how good God is to Israel, to those who are impure in heart. That we become a slave to our emotions. And the the very dangerous third thing is in verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will, we could basically say, if I spill my guts and speak truthfully about what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what does he say? I would have led God's kids astray. I would have been telling lies to God's people. And I would be a bad counselor, which shows us something is we're always counseling people, whether or not we have the title pastor or the title counselor or therapist or elder or friend. We're always counseling. We're always telling people how to interpret the truth and the facts of their lives. And here the psalmist says, if I had opened my mouth at that point in time, I would have been the worst counselor in the world because I would have been telling other people it's not worth following God. Because look what you get, zip, zero, nothing. He says, I would have betrayed my brothers. So he's almost praising God that God shut him up in his depression because he would have been a dangerous man to lead others astray. But God led him, lastly, point three, to a gracious intervention. And maybe you're going to groan at at the answer it gives because what does it say in verse 17? Until I went into the sanctuary of God... Well, if you're throwing a pity party and a temper tantrum, where's the last place you want to be? Church. Church is where people are happy to see God. People are happy to praise God. And you're just, you're actually mad at God. You're actually deeply disappointed with God. And it just doesn't stay at the emotional level. It rules your thoughts and you start getting angry and, and you're ready to even lead others to say it's not worth it. But yet he found that this was God's gracious intervention to draw him into a place of worship. And what does it say? Then I discerned their end. Their destiny. Where their life is headed. Just like last week we said we will feel utterly lost if we focus on our location instead of our direction. I'm depressed. I feel sad. If we look only where we're at right now, we will lose sight of God's grace, which is moving us forward by faith. And in the same way, God was showing not the people's location in Fat City, in Happy Town, in everything's awesomeville of the wicked. He was showing them their direction and their ultimate destination is that life of mocking God, that life of fighting God, that life of rejecting God is a dead end. And it is a place of judgment and utter disaster. And he says, I didn't see it till I went to worship. But that sounds very safe and very neat. You would expect that coming from a worship leader in Psalms. You would expect that coming from a pastor. What you need is to go to church. But I want you to just think for a minute about what a child 
uh, Israelite would experience when he went to church. He would see the priest, and on the priest's chest were 12 precious stones. You say, yeah, so what? He had some pretty cool uh, uniform. He was all blinged out with stones and gold and, and white. It was awesome. You know what literally God was saying to his people? The man who represents God to people and people to God wears right next to his heart the people of God. And God was saying in that beautiful picture is, I wear you right next to my heart. Because what does it say in verse 23? We would expect him to say, nevertheless, you are continually with me. What does it say? I am continually with you. See, what's happening this morning is not that a bunch of really nice people got into a relatively nice and clean area and sang some songs together, listened to God's word, and then we're basically by doing that saying, okay, God, come down and kind of bless our gathering with your presence. You know what we're experiencing? All of us little people with our little lives and our little problems, God is sweeping us up and holding us close to him. So that for just an hour, like we should the rest of our lives, we begin to see that I am continually with him. That God actually brings us into his presence. We're not asking God, bring your presence from heaven down to earth. We are actually experiencing in worship as we focus on him and praise his name. We are, he is bringing us close to him. He felt lost. He felt far away from God. He felt neglected and rejected and then depressed. But here he says, I am continually with you. So we'd have seen, God holds me close to his heart. When he went into worship, what would he smell? I smell something burning. It smells like steak. Wow, is it dinner time? No, it's sacrifice time. Then an animal was laid on the altar, carrying all of their sins and burned up before God. What was he smelling? He was smelling the smell of forgiveness. My sins aren't on me, because if my sins were on me, I would be the one smelling like steak. I would be the one burning and smoldering because of my sin. And I'm here standing alive before God. How is that? Because God has accepted this sacrifice in my place. What is that saying to him? God will not punish me for my sins as I look to him to take away my sins and put it on the great substitute so that I can walk and live and breathe and know God. He would smell something else. What is that other smell? Oh, it's incense. The smell, as Revelation says, of prayers going up to God. What would he hear? He would hear the songs of praises as in song. People would rehearse, like we said last week, the history of all that God has done for them. He made the Egyptians drown. We went on dry land. Praise the Lord. They would sing back and forth. The steadfast love of the Lord is forever and ever. It's everlasting. So he's smelling, he's tasting, he's hearing, he's seeing all that God has done for him. And as I was on the floor and said, oh God, I didn't know. There's this wonderfully deep philosophical movie called Joe versus the Volcano. I don't know if you've seen it with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. It's from the... 90s, maybe? Maybe in the 80s. But anyways, Tom Hanks is, is told that he has a brain cloud and he's going to die. So he has to go on this, uh, this long journey. And literally at the end, of, towards the end of the movie, they're shipwrecked and they're floating on luggage in the middle of the ocean in the South Pacific. 
And one night as they're floating, he and Meg Ryan are floating on the luggage. He looks up as the moon rises above the water. And it's a deeply spiritual moment where he says, Oh God, I never knew. That's all he can say. Oh God, I never knew. What he was trying to say, and he didn't have words for, Oh God, I never knew how big you were. Oh God, I never knew how beautiful you were. Oh God, I never knew in my life that was focused on living and dying and getting stuff and buying stuff and taxes and love and marriage. All that I forgot. How awesome you are. And so God's gracious intervention is first of all showing us His beauty. Showing us our sins forgiven. And showing us that His presence is with us. But look quickly in these last few verses. You guide me with your counsel. This guy needed a counselor bad. And who is the great counselor? God. One of my favorite uh, pastors and writers, Pastor Michaels too, Tim Keller, says this simple statement. Doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. You're the worst counselor you have ever listened to in your life. You ought to be fired. Well, that's, that's what God's Word is saying. You're the worst counselor ever. You, gotta, you ought to be fired and hire a new one. Why don't you hire God as your counselor? Because He holds us and He walks with us. He doesn't discard us even when we're throwing just the worst two-year-old fit that a, a 25-year-old has ever thrown. Wow. God is so good. It says, you will hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, as if it wasn't enough just to have your great counsel and your great presence, afterward you will receive me to glory. When even all this stuff that, that makes me say, wow, I will see things, I will experience things, I will be in the presence of a God who is nothing but, wow, all the time. And the rest of eternity will just be, I never knew. God, I never knew. It was this awesome. I never knew you were that good. And then he starts to evaluate his life correctly. Verse 25. What do I got? In heaven, you're all I've got. And this is maybe the harder statement. And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I sing these songs, I feel like the worst hypocrite. God, I only want you to get the glory. No, I want some too. God, I want you to get all the praise and honor the riches. No, I want some too. How hard is it for us to say, there's nothing on earth I desire except you. I have a hard time saying that with a straight face. As long as there's iPads, as long as there's iPhone 4, as long as there's something coming out of Cupertino, I have a hard time saying, there's nothing on earth that I desire except you. But there's good news for... Strugglers, there's good news for idolaters. God says, come on. Jesus died for that. You can throw it on the altar. You can watch it burn and see something more glorious than an iPad. You can see something more glorious than the latest street racing car. You can see something more glorious than the hottest babe or the most uh, luscious guy you've ever seen. We were built for glory. So verse 26, he says, While I live and while my body rots and my heart collapses from discouragement, God is the strength of my heart. 
What I have in God is greater than my disappointment. What I have in God is greater than what my neighbor has that I envy. What I have in God is better. And in fact, I'm going to have him, what does it say, my portion forever. I will have him forever and he will have me forever. And that will be, as we sang a few weeks ago, that will be paradise. And here's the good news, bad news. Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This passage isn't saying, shut your eyes. Nothing out there is happening. Go into your mind. Go into your heart. Go into meditation. The real world around you is an illusion, like a lot of Eastern mysticism will say. Pain is an illusion. The world's an illusion. Find enlightenment. No. We open our eyes to a world that hurts. We open our eyes to a world that is unjust. But we have to open our eyes to a God who is good. And we have to open our eyes to our own hearts that aren't good, that make idols all the time and follow after them and love them. But that's a place of lostness. That's a place of darkness. And God brings us close to Him. God is a safe place for us to park our hopes and to park our faith and to park our eternity and to park each day. It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So as God gives us a vision of his glory and his goodness to love us and to forgive all of our sins, there's new things coming out of our mouths. Instead of grumbling and bitterness, there comes a song of praise. God is good to those who are impure in heart. And if that's not you, well, here's even better news. God is the purifier of hearts. Bring your heart to Him. Bring your fears to Him. Bring your bitterness to Him. Bring your depression to Him. And have Him remake you. And what you'll find coming out of your life is a song. And He gets the glory. Let's pray. Oh God, we have wasted so much of our time and our life looking around, seeing how many toys our neighbor has and how little we have in our garage or in our, in our life. If our bed is empty, if our job prospects are empty, if our future seems empty, we feel lost and embittered. Would you invade our Hearts, would you interrupt our pity party with your glory and your goodness? Would we hear uh, of your forgiveness and hear of your glory? Would we smell what you're cooking, that you're cooking up forgiveness and you're cooking up a blessing for those who turn to you and turn away from foolishness? And one day, you will make everything right. And the only reason that today isn't Judgment Day and you're going to make everybody pay for what they've done against you is because you're leaving a day open that while it's today, we can turn back to you. It's your kindness that leaves a way open that you haven't made this day Judgment Day. You've made this the day to turn back to you and enjoy you and trust you and receive your forgiveness. And so, Father, would you help us to make good use of this day to know you and to be forgiven and to sing your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.